Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Here today with two very special guests, longtime friend, Eunice Sachi of uh, Uberea Labs, uh, and also a, an on-deck founding member, I should say. Uh, and then also Louis Geisen, portfolio CEO of Ant. Guys, welcome Thank to you. the podcast. Thank you. The illustrious Village Global Good podcast. Good to be here. Louis, why don't you describe what Ant is and what problem you're solving? Sure. So Ant is process automation for retail companies. And so what we've identified is that the way the tech stack in retail has evolved over time has not fundamentally kept pace with the uh, customer expectation. And the reason that is is because things aren't integrated and there are a number of predictable tasks that exist between each of those different uh, modules in retail. So what we do is we act as the infrastructure that connects everything and then applies automation so that we can uh, take away those manual tasks and help businesses uh, increase their efficiency. So, so what Shopify did on the front end, you're trying to do in the back end. Exactly. Exactly right. And more so than that, what we've seen is retail software has moved from being sort of monolithic and heavy to now modules. So there's modules for shipping, there's modules for payments, there's modules for e-commerce. But ultimately, with each of these modules, there exists fragmentation between them. And so in order to really own your supply chain, you must integrate everything. And in order to really innovate for your customers, you must have real-time information. What we do is we uh, apply this black box solution uh, where you can use our rules engine uh, and any retail business can automate all processes involving humans managing data. Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Thank you, Eunice. And we'll, uh, yeah, we'll dig in soon. Eunice, why don't you give a bit of background on yourself and what you're up to at Uber AI Labs? Yes, sure. So uh, my background is very much in uh, in machine learning. So I have a PhD in machine learning. Uh, so I've been very much in the academic world. And I've, after doing a lot of stuff in academia, I moved to the Valley to actually, well, you know, join the whole like, uh, the, with the creative revolution in uh, applied ML. My first stint was at a, at a company called Vicarious, where they were trying to solve AGI, artificial general intelligence. I was there for maybe a year and a half. And then I jo- briefly joined a company called Coma AI, which is like a self-driving car company. And then after that, I did a bit of venture work in the AI space. And now I'm at Uber Labs as a senior research scientist doing more applied ML work inside Uber. Because you've seen things at both the venture level, the startup level. Yeah. How have you thought about areas where applying ML AI makes the most sense and there's the most opportunity and areas where there isn't? Because it's too crowded, it's, you know, incumbents have too much power or just the technology isn't there to make a meaningful difference. For sure. So I think that's a really good question. Um, the, it's easier to like run ML, ML algorithms in bigger cor- corporations for the simple reason that they have more compute, more data, and everything is kind of like, uh, you know, all, we- all well set up, right? So it's, it's more natural for like a machine learning person to be in a big corporation and make a difference there. That being said, there's a lot of opportunities for startups too. Um, it's just, it's, it can be very hard right. to compete with some of the, some of the big players that have a lot of money and compute to throw at these problems. When you were on the venture side, what startup opportunities did you find most ripe for utilizing MLAI? Like what types of problems or, yes. what were, you know, the frameworks? How did you think about? Yeah. So, I mean, the, building good AI startups is like a very, tra- like it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. Um, there's a bunch of like, there's different categories of AI startups. Some of them are like very consulting based. They're hard to scale because you have to like, you know, build your customer base and prove your value constantly to big corporations who have just way more resources than you. 
So it's a very uphill battle for those kinds of companies. But for companies that are like trying to build something from scratch, like Comma, for example, would like is trying to is trying to build self-driving solutions, right? For that kind of approach is actually much better because you're trying to like build something completely new using a nimble team of very good engineers. So I, I would definitely like build a company that's more more like similar to Comma. Yeah. Or in general, like a robotic startup, for example. And when you say similar, you yeah. mean applying like a specific vertical where there isn't a ton of data yet or? Well, the, the cool thing about it is like, for example, for robotics, you can generate your own data quite easily, whether it's through simulation or through building your own little, you know, basic robots at the beginning. You kind of solve that data problem because you can collect a lot of data very rapidly, right? So it just becomes a matter of building good software, which is very challenging. And even then you, ha- then you have to compete with like teams from Google that are building, like we're working on similar problems, right? It's difficult. Another good example is like, you know, the pick, something called pick and pack. I don't know if you know that problem. It's like where you, it's kind of related to uh, your work where you basically have an order and you want to place it in boxes, right? Amazon is trying to automate this, right? And there's a bunch of startups that are trying to do it too, right? If you're in that space, then competing against Amazon is going to be challenging. I, I wonder when it comes to collecting and processing data, I think one thing we've always considered and, you know, to give you some context, when I was working at New Zealand's largest tech company about six years ago, mm-hmm. you know, we had... Wait, what was it called again? Trade, trade Me. So there's, That's right. So in New Zealand, this uh, there's no yeah. eBay. In China, there's no eBay. So, yeah, two sort of interesting edge cases where that existed. But, um, <laughs> you know, our advantage was that we got to see what would apply to a Western market and how people would adopt certain retail commerce trends. And the really fascinating thing that I found was, you know, as an old platform, it was very hard for us to get new goods onto the platform. Mm-hmm. So we ended up buying some technology to enable that. And I think sort of similarly when it comes to, uh, you know, Amazon and what they're able to do to mm-hmm. fix this pick and pack problem, you wonder what the disconnect is between the way they collect data and the way that, you know, you can standardize that data. Mm-hmm. And I mean, once it's standardized, how hard is it to compete with that level? Because I think that yeah. most of the, the mm-hmm. e-commerce and the, call it like the structure that exists within retail is, is mostly a template of itself. And so when you have that template kind of understood, yeah. what your job is to do is to really collect that data correctly, right? That's right. Exactly. And uh, if you collect it in a way that you can uh, apply sort of different rules to, that's when you can start to do things like prediction. And that's when you can start to optimize. And you touched on compute. So I'm kind of curious about this Uh because people talk about compute and AI. And I mean, as I go deeper into these topics, I start to read a little bit about like, you know, NP problems, right? And you start to, you start to get all these uh, fancy names out there. How much of it is really not that accessible and accessible? Because with uh, Google compute, for example, Mm -hmm. you can actually get some, uh, you know, tensor processing units up. Oh, definitely. You can apply that and you can, and you can start solving pretty complex sets, right? Yeah, when, it really depends when, on on how complicated your dataset is. So, like, if you're if you're processing very high dimensional datasets like videos or images, it becomes like you need a lot of compute for that. But if you if you're analyzing like if you're doing analytics stuff, like like machine learning has like a whole analytics angle to it, where you just look at prices, number of orders, like forecasting in that space, which is much lower dimensional. There's only like ten to twenty numbers or something that you want to predict, right? Then the compute requirements are much lower. Actually, and then you can definitely compete in that space in yeah. terms of compute. Yeah, I agree. And like from a simulation perspective, though, I mean, yeah. that's sort of taking that, that's got far more variables, right? Yeah. So if you're doing robotic simulation, mm-hmm. you have to work on a number of pretty much unpredictable things that are going to exist. And yes, you know, like right. uh, when you're trying to predict the unpredictable, uh-huh. you need a lot of compute. Uh, that is true. Yeah. So building a good simulation is is very compute intensive, typically. Do you do that? Yeah. I mean, like a simulation, something that's Simulation is something that, is, that, that interests me, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't do it, but um, I should do more of it, possibly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, how would you <laughs> how would you use simulation, I wonder, uh, kind of in a more pragmatic sense? 
like outside of robotics. So the, the reason simulation really exists in general, forget about robotics, forget, like if you, you can even simulate like your entire tech stack, for example, in, in, at Ant. So you can imagine like a thing where you mm-hmm. say like, here's, here's like a typical e-commerce stack, mm-hmm. right? That's, that I just made up yeah. and see how it behaves. For yeah, example, right? well, you could. Um, well, I mean, you you put like test loads of product through the actual infrastructure, exactly, and then you see how your messaging queues hold all that information. Absolutely. So simulation yeah. is like literally the, the dumbest way you can use a simulation is for debugging. Yeah, of course. Right? Scripts it doesn't even have to be anything intelligent. Like it's very useful for debugging without breaking anything. Right. So like we can go to Uber as an example. For example, like Uber can experiment in the real market, which is damage could be damaging to it because if the surge multipliers are there's a bug in the surge multipliers and the surge multipliers are like a million. People are going to be like, what the hell just happened? Right? You, have, you can't afford those kinds of, those kinds of bugs. You have to, you have to do yeah. that somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. You have to do it in a, in a, in a different dimension, I think. Right? Yeah. To, for that to... Well, away from the customer, at least. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, I, one, one thing I think about is, uh, you know, admittedly non-technical and, and learning uh, a lot about these processes to add value to our customer base mm-hmm. is specifically, like, how much of the academic or rather the academic uh, insight applies to the, the pragmatic requirements oh that's a good question you know how do we how does one bridge academia with real data sets definitely well i mean when when we met um at the at the village global event yes you know one thing i do when i meet anyone that's an academic or has a phd is i i try and say something sort of remotely controversial to see if it's like interesting in their in their sphere and usually it's something to do with deep learning and i think that if you got stuck into pundits out there it's like deep learning versus symbolic reinforcement learning i think it's like something that's pretty Uh big out there or symbolic symbolic ml symbolic symbolic ml and i and i wonder you know we aren't yet using any of those tools yet and we've thought about it but most of uh, our issues are prediction issues and so it's just like mathematics you know well deep learning is mathematics too. Yeah, that's true. Yes. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that would be um, harsh to say it's not mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to all. It, it does feel very... Shots fired. Shots, <laughs> shots fired. It, it, I want to get academics coming it, up to me. It does one, feel one very hacky, but it's still math. Based on, it's very much based on math. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, yeah. well there's something going back to my question. is like, do, how do you bridge the gap? You know, what's academic? What's practical? What should yes. we be testing? What should I go, you know, and, and check? It's, very, it's actually a really good question. It's very hard to tell. Like, you you have to actually go with... It's something that you build with experience, in my opinion. It's like, I've tried a whole bunch of academic ideas in real data sets, and a lot of them haven't worked. And I've built an intuition about what kind of methods actually do work, do transfer across to, like, different problems versus those that don't. Huh. Right? And uh, it's just something that you just gather with time. But yeah, so the... Something that's necessarily hypey in academia doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good in industry. That is absolutely correct. That's true. Yeah. There are probably a bunch of academics who struggle to translate their expertise into startups or the real world. Like, I feel yeah. like you're sort of a, a unicorn in that sense, air quotes. Like, it's rare <laughs> to have somebody who can thrive in academia and also thrive in the startup world. What do you think separates the people who can do that from those who can't? Yeah, so I think that's a really, really good question. I think some people in the ML space are, it depends on what they're interested in. Like, some people are very interested in developing new algorithms and extending, like, the technology that's out there already. And they don't really care about the applications. Machine learning is typically like what, what the phrase that people use is it's typically a solution in search for a problem, right? You don't want to be, if you're, if you're building a company, you can't do that. You have to start from the problem. So the money is in the applications, not necessarily the algorithms. Oh, definitely. An algorithm like doesn't mean, yeah, I mean, especially since it's like also like public. Yeah. If you put something on archive, everyone knows the algorithm. It's like it, right. the financial cynic in me says it's market value zero because its price is zero. So you can't get rich on right? algorithms. If you patent it, maybe. Yeah, but if you put it on the public sphere, it's not patentable. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't have, it has less value. Yeah, of course. But there are algorithms out there that make a lot of money. So that's definitely not true. If you patent it, 
to use the scribe you can, you can to rake the money in <laughs> cypherpunk yeah. ideal so peter thiel has this thing where he's like ai is a centralizing force crypto is a decentralizing force uh-huh. and they, they will be in conflict well that's a really interesting observation where do you sit that's a really really good question what does he mean by centralizing a centralizing force companies like facebook uber amazon will will own the data and they will they will make them even more powerful yes it will, make, it will centralize power in in the people that control the data whereas Crypto, in theory, will lead to lots of independent companies because you could just fork from Facebook and onto something new. Yes, centralization versus decentralization. And I guess I'm curious, is there sort of an open source ML or AI movement that, hey, Google should free up? It's not not just TensorFlow, but a lot of the data. Well, really, a lot of the open source stuff in ML is actually happening in big companies. So like Facebook has PyTorch, for example, and Google has TensorFlow. Right. And, uh, Amazon has an Exynos. They're, these are all like open source platforms, but they, yeah, I mean, they, they're not like, they're not released to actually for benevolence. Right. They're released like to improve the actual platforms, yeah. right? Yeah. So that they can actually benefit from it, like in the long run. Right. And they don't release the underlying data where I could create yeah. new algorithms on top of it or something. I think the central question is like, is the product the data or is it the algorithm? Right. If it's the data, then what Peter Thiel says is true is a centralizing force because the companies that have most data will, will own a lot of the actual awesome sauce that actually makes, makes, makes them work. I'm going to be somewhere in the middle about that because it doesn't have to be necessarily very data driven. Deep learning has forced machine learning to be very data, data driven because nothing really works until you have like a million data points. There are other techniques out there that is like a fusion between symbolic ML that you just mentioned with deep learning that can reduce the amount of data that you need to learn stuff. And that could actually be, de- be a decentralizing force, in fact. But also the process involved uh-huh. in it. So I think like there's this idea called human in the loop, yes. which is that, you know, throughout machine learning, you can actually require humans at some point to intervene yes. and then retrain the model with data that they input. So that's humans that aren't technical using it. For example, on our end, it would be retailers determining when they want a certain stock transfer to happen and where they want stock to, to be placed. We will feed that in with our own prediction. So we're actually improving a specific business process by yeah. getting their specific input. And so, well, you, so you're actually a centralizing force in a way because you're basically building a platform that people use. Yes. You're, you're going to aggregate all the data through your platform. Like in a, if, if, it, if, it's, if everyone adopts it, yes. right? Suddenly you have, then you have a huge amount of data set and you can really iterate your, you can get, get into the virtual, virtuous cycle of AI. So you're part of, you're, you're part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna, yeah. because you're yeah, gonna, but, you know, thanks, I mean, you're gonna get so yeah. rich and then you're gonna give it all away. Like, well, that's it. But I, you know, I wonder, um, yeah. when we talk, so one thing I think I saw in that same Peter Thiel thing was like, he talked about, uh, crypto is meritocracy. And, oh, extreme markets. And, uh, machine learning is, uh, socialism. I thought that was uh, like an interesting way to look at it, right? Because yeah. the effects of like a lot of work in automation specifically, like what machine learning is doing is going to free up time for a lot of areas, right? Yes. If you work out uh, self-driving cars and that frees up a lot of drivers, is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, that goes, but that goes to the question, is socialism a bad thing? Right? But, but that's, a, that's a completely different tangent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I see what the point, the point is that because everything is centralized, so there's one authority that controls the central data, but then the, the, ben- the, the benefits are, are spread out to the people back because you're, you, because someone like Google can build a self-driving car. Do you have, right, for example, has ML yeah. or AI, well, one, do you have strong political views either way and has ML AI shaped them in some way? Yeah. No, um, I actually don't, I feel like I'm quite as, quite a, kind of a centrist. Um, I, I don't feel very left wing or I'm definitely like socially very liberal. Like I believe, definitely believe in like, you know, like LGBTQ rights and all right. that kind of stuff. I think, I think people should do what makes them happy as long as it doesn't damage other people. But I Very you, simple rule. I pegged you as a potential anarchist. Is that? Oh, an anarchist. Um, I don't think so. No, no, no. I, I hang out with anarchists because they're fun, yeah. but, um, um, 
no longer watch. I don't, I don't think I'm personally an anarchist. Someone needs to build the roads, etc. Yes. I'm, I'm a, more of a pragmatist. And if you're a pragmatist, you just kind of, you kind of make, push you in the center, I think. Yeah. So zooming out a little bit for yeah. the, for the audience, because those and I are world experts at this. Talk about the difference between ML, AI, deep learning. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's, they're all thrown out as like general things. I think AI is the most general term. Mm-hmm. I think AI is just like, I, I kind of view it as an umbrella term that's like kind of, inc- you know, includes everything that basically humans are good at, but computers are not good at. Right. And that, that boundary shifts constantly. Right. So uh, I was thinking about this the other day, like, for example, for stock trading, humans used to do that. Right. But now computers can do a better job at it. Right. So that's actually part of AI. So part of AI there is solved for finance. Right. Because it turns out computers do a better job for trading than, than humans do. But when it comes to stuff like picking up objects, putting them in boxes, driving cars, navigating cities, that kind of stuff, like very robotics things, humans are just like orders of magnitude better than anything out there. Right. And uh, talking, using language. We're unbelievable at using language, um, as the recent, uh, you know, fallout from the whole chatbot thing shows. It was very hard to build. Right. Well, yeah, chatbots. Yes, exactly. Re- remember chatbots? <laughs> Where are they now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like there was a chatbot competition I, I, yeah. uh, recently, right? And like the, the closest they get to solving like a, a yeah. Turing conversation is just like incoherent rambling, right? Yes. Well, it's not, it's not, it, the reason is, there's a simple reason for that is, is that they, they're not imbued with the world knowledge that we have. Right, you need a lot of knowledge about the world to actually like make sense when you speak. But machines can't really. Well, they can't get that kind of creative solution. I mean, we yeah. can we can make music, we can make art with AI. Yes, for but sure. when it comes to sort of well, human... making art with AI is yeah, there are artists that would disagree with that. But yeah, <laughs> well, this, is, this is sort of interesting as well, right? I mean, now we're moving yeah. into the the politics of AI when, yes. when we allow to accept to to give it symbolic meaning like art. But I would say, like, yes. even before then, you know, pattern recognition is something that does very well. Mm-hmm. But, like, sort of creative problems that require uh, human context and, and humane judgment, like the law, are mm-hmm. uh, very hard to do with AI. Very hard. And, yeah. you know, even, even uh, creative, dire- like, direction that we have for our for retail sure. businesses, you know, what they're benefiting from is the internal operation and efficiency from that, and then prediction as a function of where stock should be and how much things should be priced yes. benefit the human loop again. That's a good question. So I think in stock trading, in a lot of cases, it's better if the human is not in the loop because they make it worse. Right. That's what's interesting about stock trading. So it's when, almost like a spectrum, when it comes to yeah. art making art, like you want a human in the loop. Yeah. Like you want the AI to just be a tool in that case that they use. And same with legal contracts. You want the AI to generate like 99% of the documents, but the really sensitive ones, but ones like bits mm-hmm. should be done by a human because they know exactly. the consequences of like ridiculous errors. Is that sort of just a temporary thing? Um, that's, want a so human in it, the loop or? I mean, everything is kind of temporary, but, uh, the, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm being facetious. Um, <laughs> yes, um, what I mean is the horizon is very long. Those, it's not going to come anytime soon. Yeah. yeah. A thing where like it generates like contracts for any particular context. Right. Automatically is just not going to happen anytime soon. Chatbot is not going to happen anytime soon. Yep. Yeah. Self-driving cars are not going to happen anytime soon. Level, especially level five. Like where you can drive any on any oh, part yeah, of the road. Cool. Oh, level five just means like you literally like hail a car. There's no driver in it. It takes from A to B, no matter where you are in the world. Yep. Last bit is very important, right? You yeah. can do it maybe in like one part of space well, but doing it like in a random country like Romania or India, like, like it's, that's hard. Yep. That level of generalization doesn't exist. Yeah. So uh, what else can AI not do yet that people... Science? We can do science. Right. We can discover new facts about the universe. Uh, we can compress actually the laws of the universe into like a few rules, which like computers are not even close to being able to do that kind of stuff. Uh, conversation, obviously, navigation, 
I would say not forget humans. I think animals have better navigation than most robots. Common sense. Common sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, Gary Marcus, and he wrote a book called Cluj, uh, yes. which is I recommend to anyone that wants to actually sort of understand basic, you know, comparison between psychology. Yes. And, I've heard that recommendation actually. I've yeah. Read it yet. Oh, yes. it's, a, it's a really good book. But um, to the listeners, that's a very good recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that we we can understand how one plus one equals two, but we yet don't know how a child, three year old will come to the conclusion that one plus one is one to one, right? And mm-hmm. they, they come up with these outcomes, but we haven't yet understood why they do that at a formation level. Yes. So do you think when it comes to really sort of deep questions, that's why machine learning or AI haven't been able to solve it, we just don't know, I guess, mm-hmm. at a cognition level, how minds work? Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that level of like thinking, is, it doesn't exist in AI, AI, AI algorithms. Like there's a good experiment with kids where they like have a bunch of objects that they're tracking. The kids just, the baby's just looking at the objects. And what happens is like someone walks in front, but just takes away one of the objects, right? If you look at the eye movements of the baby, the baby's very surprised that the, that object that they looked at is gone, right? So they're, they're constantly like parsing the scene and figuring out what's going on, right? That, that level of attention is just doesn't exist. That level of common sense doesn't exist. And it's, it seems to be pre-wired, right? That's one of the, the key things of Gary Marcus' argument is that a lot of the stuff is just pre-wired by evolution. It's not learned from data directly. We, we, I mean, it's we, not tabula rasa, basically. Yeah, yeah. We think about that kind of yeah. similarly. I mean, we while we we are a black box for machine learning in the sense that you can tie these uh, retail tools together and then you can use prediction and come up with results. Yes, there's still very much as a human engineered component to that. You know, yes. and the human engineered component is the logic that we've applied in the first instance. And then what we're able to do is use you know more tin to make that go faster. Yes, that's right. And you know, then we learn from that. And I think again. The way I would encourage people to look at machine learning is, you know, how well have you understood your data silos? Because if that's mm-hmm. really clear, then you understand kind of what you're feeding your own machine learning model, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you don't apply your, your logic correctly, then you're just sort of training something for the purpose of training it. Yes, that's right. Exactly. How often does that happen? Like, does, do you find you've sort of got yourself down a rabbit hole and, you know, we just, we have nothing here. We're just sort of being running. What running do you mean by nothing? Oh, you, you, you come out with some results that just are kind of incoherent. In, in more context, give me an example. Well, I mean, perhaps in, in the mm-hmm. context of like dispatch order management at Uber. I mean, is, is there ways to make that faster? Sure, I'm sure. That, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I'm sure there's like there's more machine learning you can do there, for example, than there currently is, or or whatever. Right? It's just all I'm saying is like the the applications of machine learning are not like general enough. They're all very narrow applications. Yeah. So far, right? Getting generality in like an, a general. This known as an AGI, right? A human level artificial general intelligence is just yeah. a very difficult thing to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zooming out, can you unpack the difference for the audience between machine learning and deep learning? Yeah, so we start with AI. Um, so we have machine learning, which is basically a way of doing AI, actually. So there's, there's symbolic stuff, and there's, there's machine learning, which is basically kind of a term that includes supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Those are the three children of machine learning, right? And deep learning is... Can you unpack what those mean? So machine learning is... So supervised learning is where you basically have inputs and labels, and you're just trying to, you're trying to learn a mapping between the inputs and the labels. So like, this, it's a typical example is like you show an image of a cat, and the machine says it's a cat, right? And you don't know why it said it's a cat, it just says it's a cat. That's supervised learning. Unsupervised learning is like the kind of... I don't know if you've seen them, is like the, like the... A good example is the GANs, generative adversarial nets, that generate realistic-looking images. They're just models that generate realistic-looking data, which also have applications for simulation. So if you want to build like a realistic simulation, you could in principle use GANs for that. And uh, reinforcement learning is is probably the most biologically like relevant part of ML, which basically ties inputs to rewards. It's, it's kind of trying to, it's, that's the most like biologically realistic thing because that's how like animals kind of behave. 
Um, they get like an input stream of data and they just like figure out what's actually important in the world and they just behave in a way that actually maximizes their rewards. So that's, that's reinforcement learning. And deep learning is just a method. Deep learning is just an algorithm inside machine learning. So it obviously, because it's a, as a machine learning algorithm, it has applications in all the three children, right? So you have deep supervised learning, deep unsupervised learning and deep RL, right? So that's, that's probably a good way to describe it. Deep supervised learning is just the comnet stuff. Mm-hmm. Deep unsupervised learning is like GANs and deep RL is like all the deep RL stuff, right? <laughs> it's yeah. called deep RL. So that's easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what makes something predictable with machine learning? There has to be some relationship between the input and the thing you're trying to predict, right? If, if there's no relationship, then there's no, there's nothing you can do, right? And it just really um, comes down to like how complex the problem is, right? Yeah. As well. So the more complex, the more data you'll need. Yes. Uh, the more, the more clear the outcome you want. Yeah. And I mean, I had someone, Fringe sure. Village sort of say to me, like, what are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. And don't worry about like thinking about the mechanic of AI. Yes. What, what do you think AI will solve? Yes. Then you start realizing it might even just be like a simple like logarithmic function. You know, it you might could. it might not even just need machine learning. In fact, if you use the Occam's razor principle, which is like favoring simple functions over non-simple ones, right? If the if the if the job is done by a log like a log function and that works, that's the best solution. You don't need deep nets at all. Yeah, yeah. The way, the way I look at it is usually when there's decisions that humans need to make, they're often suboptimal decision makers. If it's like mm-hmm. repeatable and it needs to be done fast. And if you start oh, definitely. Doing, That's you know, exactly why stock trading is like, like humans are bad at that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> even in dispatch auto management for us, we yeah. look at uh, a business with multiple warehouses uh-huh. and then you look at interstate tax requirements in the United States. Sure. Then you include the cost of labor within those states, the price of logistics. Yes. It explodes. It right? explodes. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you can train the inputs and the outputs of that. Yeah. But at what point do you think there is sort of a need to go straight to machine learning or a, or a specific function? In that particular application, like you could do that with machine learning now. Yeah. Yeah, I would be very bullish about that. Talk more about how Ant uses machine learning or plans to use machine learning in the future. Absolutely. Well, you know, kind of like in that context, we see that there are these repeatable uh, and predictable processes that exist in retail. Now, where it gets more complicated is when you start to include functions that a business hasn't considered. And I think considering tax is one really obvious one because you have stock that exists in a number of warehouses across the United States but then there's implications of tax when you know shipping those goods to a certain customer, and then within that you might want to decide that it's better to ship you know to a customer in Wyoming from Texas because there's more stock from Texas coming. Now conceptually, yeah. it's actually very simple because what you're doing yes. is actually asking, okay, what's the best way to do it? But as yeah. far as time and speed, it's just very very slow, mm-hmm. and so you can't have it slow if you want to deliver the the maximal output solution. So in that case, what we've been doing is looking at how machine learning will solve that using historical data and then using current data so that we can optimize for the delivery before the delivery even happens. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a really important point. Like if you have that data, then you can forecast when the demand is going to come and you can prepare yourself proactively. Yes. It's all about being proactive, right? And you talk about the centralizing force of, of if you centralize your own data set, so you Mm -hmm. join data at the very fundamental core of what you do, then you have the options to apply these inputs in a way to get get the, you know, to get the outcome you want. Exactly. And prediction becomes a far more real use in your business. That's right. And that's not just for location Mm -hmm. of stock, but that's also things like how much you should have. That's right. Uh, Also, like what type of things sell at turn times. You can use clustering. It's a really good way to use external things like Facebook and determine, okay, when need more gray t-shirts in yeah. uh october because yeah or even where to put where to put warehouses like yeah. you can have good recommendations about where to put the actual warehouses absolutely like, i mean amazon does this anyway 
Well, Amazon does this very well, but, you know, I think like the the really interesting use case is that there are more brick and mortar locations than there are Amazon warehouses. So, you know, what what would be the effects of a hyper network of brick and mortar stores for that purpose? And how would machine learning, you know, sit on top of that to help them all share stock in a way that really enabled like unique logistics networks? For sure. I mean, that's, that's just like, it seems much more scalable. Right. Than what, what Amazon is trying to do. Yeah, right, well, I actually. think they were smart in the sense that they determined that, well, they optimized for shipping, meaning that, yeah. you know, at the warehouse, they, everything is designed to fit the right amount of stock and the, and the boxes are designed to fit the right amount of items. Yes. And, and they've predicted that. Yeah. So realistically, that's the best way to make retail work, mm-hmm. but it's not the only way to make retail work. For sure. You know, hyperlocal is required. And then teaching those stores how to get stock to them is also a prediction problem too because exactly. you, know, you need to tap that into a larger supplier network as well. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention the, the cost for like shipping stuff around, moving yeah, stuff around. Well. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff is, it rapidly becomes very complicated for a human to track all that. Yeah. Right? Well, Especially I mean, if you're like doing like thousands of orders. Small scale yeah. details are, are no, not yeah. good for the human attention. Like let's, let's yeah. take that away from humans because we're, yeah. we're just not that good at it. Yeah. But I think when it we comes to... Mistakes. Humans also make mistakes in that in this, in this area. All the time. Yeah. All the time. But I, I would also say that, you know, Paying attention is also something humans can do at the detail level mm-hmm. when it comes to adding a certain value machines can't. Yes. So empowering. Humans are very good at debugging. That's another thing that humans are good at. Ex- exactly. Yes, right. yeah. So we want to, we want to give them the, the tool yeah. to do that with and, you know, use Ant in a way that doesn't just give them prediction, but allows them to, you know, add their attention to detail into that's the right. mix. And I think that's yeah. a really important, you know. Yeah. And that's actually really hard to do with deep learning. Debugging really? deep learning is hard. Oh, okay. Oh, because once you, once you train the inputs, it goes into a network, and yeah. you're just like, I, was, I don't know why I did that. When when you predict with the network, it spits out a prediction, and you're just like, okay, that was wrong, and I don't know why. That's true. Right? So what do you do then? Throw it away. You just hack it. Yeah, typically change your learning rate and hope for the best. Okay, so <laughs> I, I don't know. Hope with yeah. the machines. It depends on the situation. Yeah. Why couldn't Amazon just do this in the future? Why are you? I think that when it comes to machine learning, uh, it's a function of how you collect the data as well. And, you know, Amazon's very much a business focused on the stock they get through their marketplaces. But we're really thinking of the problem through a, how do we aggregate the tech stack that already exists that Amazon doesn't work with? And then how do we help those data sets uh, better use machine learning? So it's very much a different problem, right? Yeah. And another thing is like Amazon doesn't really support e-commerce. Com- like, if you want to sell like you know, your own subscription box or something, Amazon doesn't support you. You have to strike out on your own. That's where Ant comes in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, like the Amazon is a marketplace fundamentally and they have a 3PL service. And if they're going to give you infrastructure, it's AWS. And I think that most small businesses, or in fact, most retail businesses don't necessarily know how to leverage AWS within their current tech stack. And it's not designed for that. You very much need a black box uh, that's uh, the intersection of your company data and the customer journey. And the company data needs to be made in a, you know, collected in a salient way to apply to the customer journey. And that's the expectations that, you know, I want shipping this day or I, I'd expect it to be a certain price. These are things that are existing within your own tech stack that we're basically extracting and standardizing for you mm-hmm. so that it can be really orchestrated back out across everything. Right. And that's just something that, you know, Amazon you know, doesn't do as a business. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit or unpack a little bit about how e-commerce enablement and infrastructure works? Like for the audience, what is a 3PL? And Sure, sure. Well, I mean, generally speaking, when you're an e-commerce business, there are, we, we refer to it as POC. Right, which is products, orders, customers, our logistics, right? But with like that, that's what an e-commerce business is made up of. But then beyond that, there is a number of tools that enable it. So you have your e-commerce solution, which is like Magento or Shopify or WooCommerce or BigCommerce, um, and then you might have something that runs your logistics, like Shippo, mm-hmm. and then there's a payment solution like Stripe. 
But basically, the customer journey is fragmented just by the very nature of how these cloud solutions exist. By the very birth of the cloud, you had systems that exist in different databases, so there's no way to join that together. Yes. And so fragmentation... So you said join that together, centralization. Yes. So we're, we're centralizing... <laughs> the enemy is near. <laughs> the enemy is so near. <laughs> <laughs> said the guy who works at Uber. <laughs> exactly, man. And, you know, um, so e-commerce stack, you have, you have e-commerce platforms, you have logistics platforms, you have point of sale platforms as well because we, you know, we forget that brick and mortar stores also now use software. Yes, exactly. Right. That's that's actually a big opportunity. Trying to, like, to collect that up, like that kind yeah. of data. And, and yeah. it's, it's, it's ignored because there's no way to standardize it. And I think yeah. that if you're a retail business, you're using at least five different tools to run your business. Mm-hmm. On the largest end of town, you're using like 30. And that's a lot. That's and a lot. when your tax system doesn't speak to your ordering system, yeah. then how can you really make decisions that are powered towards your customer? And even at the smaller end of town, if you have five retail locations, an online store, mm-hmm. uh, and you sell on Amazon and eBay as well, how do you determine which outlet to pull the stock from? Because mm-hmm. you don't actually want to hold inventory in everywhere. Yeah. You know, you want to have, uh, sorry, in one location, you want to have inventory mm-hmm. everywhere. You want to have just-in-time inventory. And that could only yeah. exist if your information systems were aligned. And that could only really exist if you had yeah. real-time information going through them. Yeah. But today you don't. Today, the, but your biggest problem is inertia. And so when when we look at the the landscape, I think that having worked at some of the largest e-commerce businesses in the world and seeing like mm-hmm. when I, I mean when I was in Malaysia in 2014, seeing Lazada grow, which was the Amazon of Southeast Asia, right. was like being here in 1997. It was just exploding everywhere. Credit card penetration was going through the roof. Yeah. But then again, there was like no real infrastructure to manage just like the the scaling of that. Yeah. You know, and and now though there's cloud software everywhere, but there's no infrastructure to manage the scaling of that. And so, you know, you have these businesses that want to innovate more for their customers, but they've spent all of their time running the business. Yeah. And software runs right. you, whereas software should enable you. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, there should be, you know, in the logical progression of software, mm-hmm. eating the world, there should be a way to uh, connect all of that and sit over the top of it. So all those tools mm-hmm. sit by themselves and we try and bring them together. I don't want to use the word centralize. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can do it. But, but, but connect. And I, and, I, and I would say that, um, and I was talking to someone really recently about this, most businesses and, you know, FAIR, the marketplace is a really great example of this, want to leverage unique content, but they don't know how to access it as well. So at least if you have your data centralized, there's ways for you to do interesting things and access third-party sources to get more unique content too. Of course, yeah. 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 There's just like a tool that actually aggregates all the stuff that's happening in your e-commerce end-to-end. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We'll we are. basically plug you into we're, Amazon's we're, powers, right? For yeah, we say it's Amazon for everyone else because realistically, Amazon just understood that integration enabled uh, the solution, and they yes. can control your margin. They centralize through integration. You're going to centralize through bridging the, the different platforms. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, I mean, and not just bridging, but we actually yeah. act as the as the layer to automate the processes between them. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So, so you, can, you sit on top of all of them. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So your thesis is that you're going to be the Amazon for everyone else, which means that Amazon won't be the Amazon for everyone else. Right. Yeah, well, I mean... Who's your competitor is what, so, what, what, what he's asking. So, so, well, no, I mean, the, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I would yeah. say that Amazon for everyone else, we met Amazon out of a box. You know, I, I think it's really interesting that AWS allows you to invent uh, certain products, but, you know, there's there's no way to just have Amazon's infrastructure spun out. And the only way to do that is to use the best things out there. You will use Shippo for your shipping. Uh, you, you might use Shopify for your front end or Magento, or whatever you like. But ultimately, you have your own custom business logic that you want to have applied, and Ant's the way to do that. 
And cool. so instead, we, we make you less reliant on Amazon because when you rely on their 3PL and their, and their dynamics and their ad, I mean, adver- advertising on that platform, you can't really do the one thing that made you unique from the beginning, yeah. which was your own content. No, no, the, the business logic can be very complicated and Amazon doesn't support it. No. It just doesn't. No. Like if, I'll give you a like good example is like a subscription box where the box changes every month. Yeah. You can't do that on Amazon, right? If, if you want to do be a seller or that, you have to like, keep track exactly. of where people are at in their subscription, right? So you have to change your boxes according, accordingly, for example. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a, that's an example of a more complicated business logic. And, and what, that, those, those kinds of guys use Shopify, Shippo. Those are the guys that, those are the customers actually for Shopify, Shippo, all those guys. And I would yeah. also, I would also add in that, um, you know, Amazon is very much a marketplace mm-hmm. that has its own marketplace rules. Yes, Whereas exactly. most retail businesses have their own version of how they want to address their market. So yeah. if you could just allow the tech stack to at least sit in tandem with yeah. the operation that they could get on Amazon, then they, you can go after the customer in a more innovative yeah. way. But if your B2B foundation is not there first, yeah. you can't really innovate D2C. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're like a simple seller that just sells alarm, clo- alarm clocks or something, then you can do it, go on Amazon. It's fine. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we also integrate to Amazon. So I don't, I don't yeah. think it's something mutually exclusive. I just think it's a channel. It's a channel to sell on, but it is Got not it. Oh, a be-all. Oh, you do it with Amazon anyway. Yeah, it's not, it's not a cool. be-all or end-all to e-commerce. Yeah. And simply if you had your operations in a place where you didn't need to rely on one channel to drive your sales, it just mm-hmm. became a place for you to leverage. Sure. And you could do things like... It's if a little outlet for you to just sell yeah, stuff. Of yeah. course, mm-hmm. of course. And I think Facebook and uh, Instagram are channels that people need to understand better. And we've yeah. you know, looked at those specifically about how can listing onto that and how can automation specifically oh, help yeah. with that function. And we've got some really cool ideas that we're working with our retailers. Well, that's on. interesting. Yeah, yeah because yeah. Facebook Marketplace and stuff is big. It's yeah, it's got... Yeah. It's huge. And yeah. so, I mean, so Instagram, in my opinion, is going to be one of the futures of commerce. Mm-hmm. And if you don't leverage that correctly and you don't understand the dynamics of your business to leverage them correctly, yeah. you're sort of left in this environment where, you know, five years ago, you should have taken the more traditional method to run your business. But that wasn't it then. And now you should take the non-traditional method, which is to automate everything. And it seems non-traditional because retailers don't yet know that you can have this level of automation. Mm-hmm. But as we speak to them and they realize it, they're asking for it, but, you know, by using words like, I spend all my time on this or, mm-hmm. you know, this, this sucks or, you know, this is just very slow and I want to be doing more and I want to be advertising more and marketing mm-hmm. more. But, you know, ultimately the software doesn't run the business, it runs me. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a very dangerous thing that happened through most of these software tools. Sure. They gave you the promise of easy setup in an easy e-commerce environment, but it doesn't really deliver the reality of the operation that exists within them. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing is, is that most of the logic that exists has been there for us to predict. So yeah. we should be, we should be doing that. And that's, uh, that's, you know, specifically that's what cool. we try to mm-hmm. add value to. What sort of insight did you guys have? either around go to market or technology or product that will make you successful where others who've tried have failed? And how do you think about defensibility over time? Uh, good question. You know, I think... Uh, <laughs> is this a serious fundraising round or what's going on? Yeah. Eric's going to write a check after this, so I better, I better I'm answer this, so, this seriously. <laughs> no, it's, it's really simple. It's that the, the progression of channel has enabled us to easily onboard and, and collect customer data through API. You know, what was not available five years ago is now available. And so you can ingest data from point of sale, from existing cloud systems. <laughs> and that means that we, you know, every other system in the world becomes our market, right? Uh, Square create, you know, Square paved the way, uh, Shopify paved the way and they built these like front end solutions, but there's yeah. nothing there to plug into, right? And defensibility is really just like, we are giving you the black box to automate off, right? Yeah. Which means that you, you, you are building the infrastructure, so you become the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that's defensible because people start using it as the way that 
retail is run on. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, defensibility is a function of how we continue to enable people to build into our machine learning. Sure. And we have our own black box for that. The virtual AI cycle is where you basically get customers, right? You have a basic customer base. You get the data. You train your ML algorithms, which makes your product better. As your product gets better, you get more customers, which gives you even more data. And then you, then you feed it into the ML algorithm and it goes back to the thing. And it's like, that's the virtual cycle. Really? So it's like a, it just eats it. It's like thing. a real thing. Yeah. Virtual, that's okay. how you become huge. That's right. defensible. Yeah. That's, that's what's defensible. Yeah. Taking that one as well. You have to start with a customer base though. You have to like, there's a cold start problem, right? Yeah. And I also think the, the sort yeah. of reality with small businesses too is that they all, they all benefit from the network, right? So we have retail stores recommending us to other retail stores that they know through their network. Yeah. Because there's, it's an advantage for all businesses to be running well because it's just going to drive a better experience. Yeah. And then they have times to focus on more yeah. creative outputs too. Another thing you can do, potentially do is like really crush one connection, like really crush the connection between Shopify and Shippo, mm-hmm. right? Make it super usable. And then everyone's like, Oh my God, this is great. I really need this. That's how you get a lot of co- yeah. initial customers that can start, that can, that can bootstrap you. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. For example, I'm just giving, I don't even, I mean, I'm not familiar. No, with that's a great idea. Yeah. And you know, one thing yeah. we think about as well is like, what are, what are template predictions that people might use? And we've been mm-hmm. talking to a bunch of our retail customers and like, there are things that, you know, 90% of them would use that mm-hmm. like one of them suggests. And yeah. I'm like, that's such a great idea. Yeah. So, you know, defensibility is sort of entrenched in the fact that we are getting the business logic and operational yes. logic from the, you know, most creative people in the industry. That's so right. Thinking you're, you're actually crowdsourcing yeah. it in a way. Exactly. About it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a strong point. Too. Yes, exactly. Talk more about how you think about go to market and sort of the differences between going direct to customers or DC brands versus going through channels. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, direct, the same rules apply in retail. The same things I saw happening, uh, in Southeast Asia or New Zealand also exist at the SMB level. I mean, I try to build my own marketplace using a point of sale software, using Magento and using Australia Post shipping labels. Oh, cool. You know, and that was impossible because you, if you did not have something to integrate them with, you just right. didn't do it and couldn't do anything. I actually yeah. asked the CTO of like a, a company called, uh, Vend. Uh, at the time, could you just build this? And he's like, no, that's not how it works. You have an API, mm-hmm. go ahead and do it yourself. Yeah. Um, so the channel in that respect is you're, you're, you're taking, I guess what you would call software 2.0 or a lot of these cloud tools mm-hmm. and giving their team something to supercharge those products with and yeah. automation supercharges everything. So they have something to sell and that empowers their sales team, which is a solution sell. So instead of selling right. a product, you sell a solution. That's one, that's channel. Now, direct-to-consumer brands, they have already built their tech stack or they might be scaling into brick and mortar. So they need a way to easily you know, transfer data. They need an easy way to apply the business logic that they know needs to apply down to brick and mortar level. Exactly. So for them, we can just integrate into one part of their tech stack uh, and then focus on their, their physical presence there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just really depends on the business logic they require at the D2C level. But we've had some pretty amazing you know, conversations with brand leaders here and um, what we see happening at SMB is happening at a more complex level, but it makes it no less complex for our machine learning to, to solve. So it's actually more fun because we have more data to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, Why is it notoriously hard to sell to SMBs? Why are people notoriously dubious when companies are selling to SMBs? Those are good investments. And well, how I are you going about it? I, I, I was reading um, something on LinkedIn. It was someone from Golden Gate Ventures. I forgot his name. But he was talking about why SMBs are great. Right, mm-hmm. and it was also the function that there are not just channels but products that enable the reality of software. So, like the iPad, yeah, you know, now uh, we can have our point of sale on an iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's magical. It's truly magical. 
Yeah. It is. You tap a thing and, and you got a coffee. You know. Yeah. So my, I mean, my, my, my grandparents used to own a shop and they had a shitty porn and sale system, which was ter- terrible and clunky. Oh, really? Yes. Cool. Well, and, they switched uh, it. And they, they didn't... Well, they, I mean, their shop is closed now because they're, they're all retired and stuff. But uh, I was just like, damn, this is such a good idea. It's, it's, it's so much easier now these days yeah. to have a POS system. POS systems were terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, I, you yeah. know, to, to, to sort of expand on that, to expand yeah. on the porn and sale, uh, why channels and why SMB will... Square proved that they could tell you that your business would improve just by digitalizing. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. We're just going to digitalize your business and you're going to use this cool little chip reader and then it's going to increase your revenue. And it did. And it increased the revenue more than they even said it would and that had like a network effect. They went viral. And so already there's a movement towards digital first at SMB. Intuit did accounting. Zero did accounting. And the way that they were able to successfully scale those was through channels like accountants. So you didn't necessarily need just digital only channels. You had the the person and the archetypes that understood the business as the evangelist. Twilio did it with developers. And I think in a similar way, you know, we do deal with developers as well. And they are in many ways working on the same problems, front-end problems primarily for these systems. Mm-hmm. But they shouldn't really be, t- you know, so the developers at least that, you know, we work with aren't proficient in integration. They're not very, uh, you know, heavy engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, so what if we could just give them a two-sided value story where they can spend more time doing what they do well, which is the front-end solution. Yeah. Uh, and we can also give them a way to increase the, the customer's uh, yeah. revenue. Yeah. The moment you, you centralize, I'm not going to use the word centralized, but the moment you integrate stuff. Um, yeah. We don't use And it. you have more intelligence. It's actually like really, that's where the, that's where the network effect comes in. Yeah, and 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 I think SMB is now already adopting this. So you know, I don't think that SMBs are hard to sell to as such because with with what's happened because of software 2.0, if you will, we know that you're spending all this time on it. I can talk to you and ask you, Eric. You know, Eric's uh, t-shirt store, sneaker store. What else would you sell at the Eric? Oh, bookstore. Uh, bookstore. 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 Yeah, yeah books as well. Um, I, I follow Eric Torenberg's week. It's a hard thing to get into, into a retail <laughs> store these days. But you know, the, the, the purpose of that is like, we know you're spending time packing these labels or choosing which outlet to pull from, and we can save you that time right now. And in fact, because you use one of the systems that, you know, I would say that 80% of retail use 20% of the software out there. And if they don't fit in with that 20%, then we can find a way to integrate it through the API mm-hmm. so you can capture everyone. And then that only leaves the other end of the market that need to move towards digital first. Mm-hmm. But if you don't make that movement, I think in retail, you will really fall behind, uh, which is what we saw in the general kind sure. of first wave. A final thought. I think we've covered prediction, dispatch, we've done, we've done the technical. You know, if you were going to start capturing your own data to make yourself into some form of a machine, yeah. right? And I read this really interesting article called can a neurologist understand a microprocessor? Because it tries to compare sort of hardware versus biology. You know, realistically, yes. do we want to just be feeding this machine, you know, this information that we collect into something? Should Eric be putting these podcasts into a, you know, deep neural network and training it? I think he should. Yeah, that would make sense. But, um, oh, I think we, you mentioned something interesting there, though, because you compared like neurology, neuro, neuroscience with analyzing the activities of a chip and trying to understand what the hell is going on. It is similar to that. It is, it is that difficult, which is why neuroscience is very hard. And it's very hard from, to go from neuroscience to what AI, like algorithms, to go from like the activities of neurons to an algorithm is a, is a very difficult step to make, which is why that, that, that branch of research has been very difficult to make progress in. It's exactly what you said. It's like trying to understand an iPad from the chips. Yeah. Well, so we have like, how, how are you going to do that? It's pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, there's one more question. There's one more question. And this is... Uh, this is about this, you. This is about Eric. Is Eric an AGI? Is Eric an AGI, yeah. Yes. And how would you... 
How would you? <laughs> and how how would you how would you determine if that was the case? I mean, it's, it's sort of like this thing where yeah. we, we get so excited about AGI in general, right? But if it was a true AGI, it would be impossible to tell. That's the whole point. But yeah, <laughs> right? that would be very, yeah. What questions yeah. would you ask him? I mean, you'd have um, to... I would have to... Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, the whole Turing test is, like, he's it's, it's basically indistinguishable from a human. Right? Which he is. So we don't know. There's certain, <laughs> so there's certain qualities about Eric that make him seem like an AGI, which means that because he's such a... He's so on it. Mm-hmm. He's so, he does a lot so of thoughtful. things. He's extremely thoughtful. First of all, I think he doesn't sleep. <laughs> There's no way you could do these things without, with sleeping. It's, it's also true. Right? I mean, us, us measly humans, we have to sleep like seven <laughs> or eight hours a day, which is a total fucking waste of time. And Eric doesn't do that. That's why he gets all this shit done. Okay. So, so that, thinking, my theory revolves around him not sleeping. Most, Therefore, he's a robot. Yeah. yeah, yeah my, exactly. My, my, my theory includes some of that as well. I think, uh, <laughs> the, the reason he wouldn't be AGI probably Eric is too thoughtful, too nice. Yeah. But I guess like, we, we, I mean, yeah. You, what do you have to say? Are you... Well, I have no feelings or emotions, so. Okay. Exactly. He has no feelings or emotions. <laughs> yeah. So you're not one. That's he's very also, kind. His, his, his algorithmic traversal of the social graph is phenomenal <laughs> in, this, in, the, in, this, in this wonderful valley of silicon. Yeah. Silicone, I should say. <laughs> silicone. Um, yeah. So that's, those are the reasons why Eric Torenberg is, 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 an, is an AGI. I think we And extra, that. extraterrestrial it's... as well. He's both. Yeah. <laughs> and he's an alien, alien AGI. Yeah. We yeah. Got... Yeah, when we were booking this meeting, actually, uh, the amount of confusion caused by using ET. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and then explain that ET and Eric Tarnberg, but also mean AGI. Yes. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to... It just... also means, unfortunately, it also stands for Eastern Time, which was <laughs> caused, also, caused the, cause which the chaos. Which caused yeah. the yeah. book. My EA was terribly <laughs> confused. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you for like, coming on the likewise, Village Global likewise. Podcast. Thank you so much for arranging. For, for people who want to learn more about... Your work, Eunice, or want to learn more about your work, uh, Lewis, where can you point them? Maybe Eunice, you'll start first. Oh, sure. Yeah. So my, my Twitter handle is a new underscore Saji and, uh, my LinkedIn is just my name, I guess. You can, you can get in touch with me at Eunice.Saji at gmail.com as well. If you want to get, like, email me directly. So yeah. Cool. It's been really good. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, I mean, please check us out on www.anthq.com and then just, yeah, look me up on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll say hi. Awesome. Nice. Okay. Great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.